Brown Girl Radiance celebrates the brilliance of women of color through reflective conversations and stories. I'm your host, Pure Brown Joy. Hello to all of my radiant friends. I hope you're having a beautiful and safe summer. Strong emphasis on safe as our nation and our world are beginning to open up again. I'm so excited to introduce you to another brilliant brown girl abroad. Before I do that, I want to quickly acknowledge that this month is African American Music Appreciation Month. It was designated by President Jimmy Carter in 1979 as Black Music Month. However, it wasn't until 21 years later in 2000 when it became an official presidential proclamation. In 2009, President Barack Obama updated the name to African American Music Appreciation Month. Now, we know that African Americans have made countless contributions throughout every industry and built the U.S. as we know it today. I hope you have had a chance to celebrate some of our Black artists. I personally love 90s R&B and so many different genres of Christian music, but I have to celebrate gospel because there is something about the way it hits your soul. There are too many artists for me to try to name, but since this is Brown Girl Radiance Podcast, I will shout out some Black female artists who I enjoy. Anyone who knows me knows I love Brandy Norwood, who goes simply by Brandy. India Ari is also one of my favorites. I remember saving my lunch money to buy her first CD titled Acoustic Soul when I was in high school. I have been inspired by all of her albums, and she also has a podcast called Songversation, where she shares the stories behind many of her songs. I also want to celebrate Anita Baker, Jill Scott, Erica Badu, MC Light, Queen Latifah, SUV, TLC, In Vogue, Destiny's Child. Now, when I say Destiny's Child, I do need to clarify that I enjoyed both iterations of the group. So I celebrate the original composition, which was Beyonce, Kelly Rowland, Latoya Luckett, and Latavia Roberson, and the updated version when they were a trio and they added Michelle Williams. I want to honor Salt and Peppa, Lauren Hill, Chaka Khan, Diana Ross, Mary J. Blige, and Shanice, who sings one of my favorite songs of all time called I Love Your Smile. I did a special bonus episode back in September 2020 where my friends and I celebrated one of the best versus battles of last year with Gladys Knight and Patti LaBelle, who are simply queens and icons. So you can go check out that episode. It's called Paralyzed by Excellence, a Masterclass in Sisterhood. Last week, I stumbled upon a vinyl record store and I found Whitney Houston's first album when she looked 
so regal on the cover with her slick back hair. I also found an Aretha Franklin album. A few years ago when I was in San Francisco, I came upon Treasure. Um, I found a Janet Jackson vinyl record that has beautiful 80s artwork. I also enjoy newer artists like her and sisters Chloe and Hallie. And I also want to just make sure to acknowledge Beyonce, who is so innovative. I was inspired by the Black is King cinematic experience, and the music is stunning. Now, for Christian and gospel artists, I want to make sure to honor Yolanda Adams, Cece Winans, the Clark sisters, Kiara Sheard, Mary Mary, Tasha Cobbs, and Kim Burrell. There are newer Christian female artists like Doe Jones and Naomi Rain, who are so incredibly anointed. Additionally, there are multiple male Christian artists who have blessed uh, me and had a strong impact on my life like Fred Hammond, Israel and Newbreed, Jonathan McReynolds, Take Six, Travis Green, Kirk Franklin, Jason Nelson and William McDowell who also happens to be my pastor. There is so much amazing music by black artists and again this is just a short list but I wanted to make sure to highlight this special month because this music helps score the soundtrack of our lives. I mentioned this on the previous episode, but I want to share again that there is an official museum of African-American music that recently opened in my hometown, Nashville, Tennessee. It is incredible and I encourage everyone to explore it. Lastly, in celebrating our culture, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that Juneteenth is now an officially recognized federal holiday. It commemorates June 19th, 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, when slaves in Galveston, Texas found out they were free. I did not learn about this holiday until I was an adult. But once I found out its significance, I officially adopted it as my Independence Day. I think it is important that this holiday is recognized because it helps to keep the impacts of slavery at the forefront of the American conversation. But I think that overall it is a symbolic action and it does not actually address the systematic issues in America around racism. So I'm praying that in addition to a holiday, we will see additional legislation passed that helps to address voter suppression, police brutality, and the economic disparities in black and brown communities amongst other things that we need to see changed and improved in America. This leads me to the conversation with my guest for today. Sakuria Dickerson, who is not only an insightful and experienced brown girl abroad, but also an activist who serves as a consultant for community organizers 
here in the United States, as well as in Africa. Let's jump into our interview. My next guest I've known for over 20 years. We met way back in middle school. And to this day, she is one of my sister's best friends, which makes her one of my adopted little sisters. I even attended her wedding a few years ago, which was very exciting. We also played basketball together in high school. So we are ballers. So, you know, don't start none, won't be none, okay? <laughs> uh, she, <laughs> she, <laughs> she graduated from Dillard University, which is a beautiful HBCU in New Orleans. So it's not FAMU, but it's still all HBCU love. Uh, she is a nonprofit consultant a fellow of the Melton Foundation, the Institute for International Public Policy, and the U.S. State Department's prestigious Boren Scholars Program. And, of course, she is a brown girl abroad who served in the Peace Corps, and she plans radical self-care retreats, which I'm excited to learn more about during our conversation. And with that, I want to welcome Sakuria Dickerson to Brown Girl Radiance podcast. <laughs> hey, sis and everyone. Such a pleasure being with you all today. I am so happy to have you and just so proud of you. So uh, can you start? I know I gave like a brief intro, but can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your background? <laughs> Definitely. Um, so I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. I currently live in Taunton, Massachusetts with my husband and our three-year-old son, Trez. Hey, baby. Um, I currently work as a coaching consultant for community organizers, um, teaching organizers across the country um, how to be better organizers. Um, I'm also a certified herbalist. Um, I teach plant-based cooking classes and really excited to share with you um, all the work that I've been doing to center um, the self-care of social justice workers um, across the country and social justice movements through the retreats that I lead. Excellent. Well, I'm really excited to, to dive into a little bit of that. But first, I want to rewind just uh, a little bit. So I know that you were a part of the Peace Corps a few years ago, and I'm sure that must have been a very unique experience, especially serving as a Black woman. So I was wondering if you can please share how you got involved with that organization and highlight some of your experiences abroad during your time volunteering. Definitely. Um, you know, the Peace Corps um, was an incredible experience for me. Uh, not a perfect organization, um, but so much, you know, learning and growth um, for me happened during my time at the Peace Corps. And I'm so um, forever grateful, you know, for the organization and, and for the opportunity. Um, I ended up coming to Peace Corps because I had just graduated from college. Um, and I don't know, I got some feelings about the whole DU family thing, but I think we'll let the um, your viewers um, work it out. Um, so I just graduated um, looking for, you know, these international opportunities. Um, I had already, you know, done two study abroads while I was in college. Um, I was an African studies major. I was studying, you know, Arabic and French and, you know, like knew that 
I wanted to do something with an international, you know, focus and bend, something related to, you know, like probably African policy in, in some ways, uh, but wasn't exactly sure um, about, you know, the exact career path. Well, for me, um, you know, I end up graduating, um, you know, third in my class overall, um, t top of my division and could not buy a job. <laughs> after college, like absolutely could not. And then something that I, I don't think I quite understood as a, you know, younger working professional, um, but got clearer, you know, as I, you know, got older, just really understanding that so much um, classism was really at play for me in terms of the types of jobs and opportunities um, that I was having access to. So I was looking at, you know, opportunities to work abroad with places that wanted you to have a master's um, and do an unpaid internship, you know, to get your foot in the door. And so, you know, doing informational interviews and things like that and getting really clear who in the world is going to, you know, afford that. Uh, the experience, you know, that I came from, the background that I came from, you know, going through college, I had to take out, you know, loans. And I can't remember exactly now, but I think what they give you six months, maybe a little less than that to even, um, you know, like pay the loads back. And so I needed a job job. I needed something, um, you know, where I could start making money. And so I, you know, ended up taking a job at, I think for Verizon Wireless at the, you know, call center. So don't y'all beat me up. I probably called uh, one of y'all before uh, asking for, <laughs> for Verizon's money, um, you know, but during that year, like just really having to take a hard look at, you know, what's important to me, you know, like where, you know, what are my values um, and what exactly am I trying to achieve, you know, by um, working abroad and, you know, like pursuing certain opportunities. And so I got really clear for myself that, you know, I needed to gain some more experience, um, you know, something that I could, you know, sell as more marketable um, on a resume. Um, but it was still important to me if I could pull it off to figure out how to be abroad because I wanted the life experience, you know, there. I had already started to dip my toe in the water in terms of, you know, doing some study abroads and, you know, college and like some internships um, and knew that that level of growth and life experience um, of being somewhere else um, was something that I really felt called to. And so what I learned about the Peace Corps, it just really made sense for me in terms of it gave me an opportunity to financially be able to go because I was able to put, you know, my loans, um, you know, in deferment um, the time that I was there. Um, you're volunteering, so it's not like you're going to be making bank, um, but I was able to, you know, save a significant amount of money through, you know, the stipend that you receive during the Peace Corps, and then the money, you know, there's like a small, um, like reintegration, you know, money that they give you when you're coming back. And with that, I was able to, you know, travel, um, do backpacking trips in East and West Africa, just because of the, you know, cost savings with the cost of living. And so, that's my, you know, road to getting to Peace Corps. Um, I'm just so clear it's a God thing because, you know, even during the experience, but especially now looking back, um, it was just a real turning point for me in terms of transitioning, um, you know, into um, the service world and, a, you know, more 
um, professionally minded focus. Uh, one of my first, you know, real, you know, jobs in that sense, I was working in Cameroon and Central West Africa as a um, small business development um, advisor. And then in the process started to, you know, work with um, a nonprofit there on thinking about how to create more structures so that it could be more sustainable. Um, I currently, you know, teach organizers about organizing. I started organizing there around potable water, you know, in my town without <laughs> calling it organizing or like even knowing that something like that was a profession. And so it was just a really great, you know, early learning opportunity, you know, for me. Wow. And and where did you study abroad when you were in college? Um, the first study abroad was going into my sophomore year. Um, I did a summer study abroad in Cuba and Jamaica, studying African spirituality with the School for International Training. And then um, my junior year of college, um, I studied abroad through the State Department, a scholarship I received from the State Department um, in Morocco studying Arabic, um, critical language. Wow. So, uh, so it sounds like some of those initial abroad experiences you got, whether it was your studies in college or the Peace Corps really aligned with what you had already been pursuing in college. Cause it sounds like a lot of your uh, experience has been on the continent of Africa as well as in the island. So, you know, supporting our, our community, on a on that you know international level, definitely. And so I know that you are very passionate about education and ministry and activism, and you plan what you call radical self care retreats. And so, can you explain what that means and highlight some of your previous trips? And additionally, what does your process look like when you're planning and leading these retreats? Definitely. Um, so I, so the wording radical self-care retreats really refers to radical in the sense that the things that we normally go to retreats for um, aren't normally things that we end up recreating once we go home, right? So you go to a retreat, you know, because of the spa, you know, so you go get your massage at the spa and use the, you know, the pool and the hot tub and steam room and the sauna and, you know, you're doing, um, you know, all these things or maybe you're attending workshops, you know, with speakers and, you know, all these things that are retreat, right? Like, the essence of the word retreat, you leave your space and you go retreat to somewhere else. Um, and there's so much beauty in that. And I love, um, you know, luxury retreats and, you know, all sorts of retreats, but really realizing that, especially in black and brown communities, the access to be able to do retreats in that particular fashion um, isn't always there. And so radical self-care retreat in that you get some of the, you know, pampering and like focus um, on and complete focus um, on yourself, your healing, your growth, in addition to also acquiring some tools around how you can recreate those things when you go back home. So for instance, um, I work with, you know, a team of alternative um, um, wellness 
excuse me, I work with a team of alternative wellness, um, alternative wellness practitioners. And, you know, one of them is a, you know, acupuncturist. And so when people come to the retreat, you get to work, you know, with her as an acupuncturist, but then she also teaches you um, about how to, you know, like hit certain pressure points, you know, in your hands and your feet, uh, in your feet and other parts, you know, of your body. So when you go back home, um, you can recreate, you know, some of that. Um, I teach plant-based cooking classes. And so, you know, you come to the retreat, everything is, you know, just incredible, um, fresh, um, and you get recipe cards on how to recreate, you know, these things when you go back home. And so just really believing in um, how we give folks the tools that they need to where it doesn't always have to be these, you know, one-off things, um, but that it's something that's sustainable for them that they can constantly keep coming back to with the hope that, you know, they're also sharing it with their family, sharing it with their communities. And so just creating um, the more sustainable um, healed world that I believe in and want to see. Our process for thinking about these retreats is really grounded in meeting people where they're at um, and just really, you know, seeking, um, you know, guidance from the creator around like what people need so that they can, you know, be everything that they're, you know, called to be. So some of the retreats that we've, you know, done in the past um, have been radical self-care retreats that specifically focus on, you know, centering, um, self-care for social justice workers. Um, we've also done, um, healing, um, retreats with black and brown women. Um, I've led a retreat that focused focuses specifically on, you know, youth. Um, so I worked with a choir where we, um, integrated missions into their, um, into a road trip that they took um, around the Southwest of the United States, um, going to places like um, Southern Colorado and New Mexico, um, you know, in, in Utah. And so, yeah, like my process is never the same. The thing that is consistent about it is knowing that, you know, whatever we're doing um, is centered in, giving people reflective space to really think about um, where the places that they want to see growth and then thinking about, you know, alternative indigenous and African practices um, for how to get there. Amen. I love that. And, you know, I think with the pandemic, we've all kind of had to learn what our definition of self-care is and, and what that looks like. Uh, so, for example, for me, I realized like I love tea. Um, and so being, you know, so buying all different kinds of teas. And then in the fall of 2020, I all of a sudden discovered candles, like scented candles and, you know, just enjoying those in my atmosphere and, and just those different things that we learn. And I know a few years ago, you invited me on one of these retreats. And I will tell you, post pandemic, I definitely <laughs> plan to join in on, on, on one of them. So keep, keep me updated and uh, I'll definitely also share it with the listeners as well. Beautiful. Beautiful. And so I know you've visited over 30 countries. So do you feel that there have been certain nations or cities where you as a black person slash black woman felt more welcomed, celebrated, or embraced? 
<laughs> wow. Um, you know, I've been really fortunate to, um, I feel like everywhere I go, I am maybe when I first started traveling was a bit surprised, um, by how hospitable, you know, people are all over the place. Um, and now it's something that I think I manifest and attract, you know, to me, um, through my intention, um, and, and, and the way that I process things, um, through my perspective. And so recognizing that even challenges that I may experience, you know, abroad, um, and anywhere, you know, are opportunities to recycle them into, you know, some of my best teachings, you know, and, and lessons, um, for growth. Um, and that is not to discount, um, challenges that we as black people have in this country and, you know, abroad. So like definitely, um, you know, very clear about my own experiences and like honoring, you know, other people's voices, um, in terms of how those dynamics play out. Um, for me personally, let's see some places that I felt the most accepted, you know, Cameroon was the first place that I lived longer than a year. So I was in Cameroon for almost two and a half years. Um, and it's home, you know, and a lot of like, I still keep up, you know, with, you know, my family there. Um, I could think of meeting <laughs> this one woman who, you know, she was asking me where I was from. I was telling her I was from the States. And she's like, oh, but your um, your mom's from Cameroon. I was like, no, my mom was from Tennessee. And she was like, oh, okay, okay. But your grandmom was from Cameroon. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, no, I'm pretty sure she, she was born in the United States too. And LaJoy, you would think that'd be it. Don't you know this woman came back and said, okay. So then your great, great grandmother of Sir Cabri. I was like, you know what? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Um, you know, but I felt so welcome because everybody thought I was from there. You know, everybody claimed me. Um, everybody assumed that you belong here, um, that it's just right and natural um, that you're here. And so, you know, and I had these like really powerful experiences, you know, too, you know, like coming into the country, um, you know, and like having to show your passport or, you know, like getting ready to leave, you know, and like having to go through customs, you know, and those sorts of things, you know, and people would say things like, welcome home, sister. And I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but I experienced that a lot all over Africa. I think it's just really, really special for me, um, seeing as I lived in Cameroon for so long. That's beautiful. You know, I, I would say from a lot of my uh, other guests throughout this season, I've noticed it sounds like the continent just embraces us uh, as African-Americans. So it's definitely on my list of, of places that I want to get. There are multiple countries in Africa that I would like to visit, but um, yeah, it's just always so nice to hear, you know, those positive experiences and, and essentially kind of going to, I'll, I'll put it almost like this, like a family reunion, <laughs> like, you know, some, somewhere along the lines, uh, these are our people. And so um, being able to have that connection is just amazing to me. So I know that, you know, overall, uh, as you mentioned, you, you were, you felt welcomed and you felt embraced. And what would you say um, has been your most rewarding experience while you've been traveling abroad? And also, what would you say has been your most challenging experience? Oh, um, 
You know, my most rewarding experience would probably be backpacking in East and West Africa when I was living in Cameroon. Um, I literally traced my fingers. Um, so I have a favorite atlas. <laughs> so I literally, most of my trips, in fact, all of my trips start with me just kind of tracing my finger, you know, along the route, you know, that I want to take. And so, you know, I was doing that for, you know, weeks, um, before booking, you know, either of, of those trips. And I think the reason that it's, like so special to me having done those um, is that it's so unlike me, you know, like something that I'm a cross T's dot I's, you know, type person. Um, and one of my goals, one of, one of the things on my bucket list is to want to visit every country, you know, in Africa at least once. And so um, like just in the process of doing that, like getting really clear, man, ain't nothing I can't do, first of all. Um, that I can really stretch and do things outside of, you know, my comfort zone and like so much, you know, growth there. So it's like, you know, I had a general idea of like what I wanted to do and like, you know, I planned some of the hotel stays, you know, around the way to, you know, give me some level of, um, groundedness, you know, in the trip, um, you know, but I also did, you know, a bunch of hitchhiking, which maybe sounds a little more, um, you know, like thrill seeking than it is like, it's actually one of the very common ways and like acceptable, um, like structured <laughs> transportation, you know, modalities, um, in different parts, you know, of Africa. Um, but especially for me and like being so young at the time, um, you know, it was a real testament to like just stepping out on faith and, you know, like really going forward and reaching and stretching. So just in so many ways was like a real transition into independence and almost like this initiation, you know, into, into womanhood that the things that I want to do don't have to be these um, far off dreams can be things that I actually act on, um, you know, at any point in my life. So those experiences were really special and then most challenging. Oh my goodness. Um, so honestly, the most challenging thing about, you know, being abroad is interacting with people um, in my Americanness, um, you know, all over Africa. Um, so especially in West Africa, where a large majority of the countries are Francophone um, or French speaking, you know, people would refer to me as La Blanche, La Blanche, the white woman, the white woman. Um, you know, and this really pissed me off, <laughs> you know, got there, especially the kids. Right. Cause they're so adorable. Like little five-year-olds and, you know, stuff like there were there, I literally was with some, you know, my white friends. Um, and there would be, we'd meet kids who had never seen a white person before. And I was like, it's really crazy seeing this in reverse. Right. <laughs> and so, and so, um, you know, but for them to group me with the white people, um, was really hard, really, really hard, um, really challenging, you know, for me. And so I think I had to learn that every opportunity was a teaching moment, but that all the teaching didn't have to come through what I said, um, that my sheer presence, um, you know, was teaching, you know, I can think of one time, um, you know, being at um, the market in, in the town that I lived in, in Cameroon. 
And one of my friends, we wanted to, you know, get food. And so it's very common, you know, like street vendors, you know, folks selling food. Um, And so we're getting food and I sat down, you know, to eat. And my friend, you know, looks at me and he's like, no, 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 we can't sit down, you know, to eat here. You know, like people think that we're, you know, like lower class, you know, like we're supposed to, you're supposed to go back to your office, you know, and eat. You're supposed to go back, you know, to your home, you know, and eat. Like if you're eating here, um, you know, that says that, you know, you probably don't work, you know, like in, you know, town in a place that has an office, you're, you know, like a, you know, labor outside and, you know, all these things that I don't make, you know, light of, cause we got our, our own crap <laughs> in the United States. Um, you know, but to make the decision to, you know, sit down and, and my privilege, right. Um, because the truth of the matter is that I didn't have the same, um, same societal pressures weighing on me, um, that my friend, you know, may have had to, to navigate. Um, and so like making decisions that, you know, part of being American also meant that, um, it created, windows and opportunities to, you know, challenge, um, potentially oppressive, um, frameworks and, and, and social norms, um, you know, that are like holding people back, you know, and keeping us, you know, separate from each other. And so the irony, you know, and the beauty is that (laughs) that particular friend, um, would normally, you know, have his, you know, meal to go, um, and would, you know, like wait with me, you know, as I ate, um, but eventually, you know, started to sit down. Um, and by the time, what, maybe a year or so in, um, it became way more common, you know, for people to like interrupt, um, that particular social norm and to sit and eat with folks, you know, who they may never, you know, eat with. And so, Yeah. So just one of the challenges is recognizing like when to speak up, you know, about certain things um, and when sometimes, you know, my actions um, are just as powerful as anything I could ever verbalize and being discerning about that. Wow. It it made me think of um, when you shared that story, which was very powerful. It made me think about, there's a there's a hymn, and I don't know all the the words, so I'm not even gonna try. But I know one one part of it it talks about let us break bread together, and like yeah. that fellowship aspect. And so um, I think that cross culturally, like that's just so powerful, and 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 the context that you shared it in. So thank you for sharing that uh, story. And um, also, you may have answered this uh, question already, but uh, still want to just put it out there. But what exactly would you say you have learned about yourself during all of your travels abroad? You know, I don't that that I'm incredibly resilient. Um, that I'm a bad sister. <laughs> I can do anything um, that I put my mind to. You know, like I you know, grew up in the hood, um, like just so many of the opportunities that 
I have had, you know, to travel abroad, like at this point, I'm like getting close to having gone to 40 countries, you know, a large part of, you know, my travel has, you know, been through hustling, you know, like seeking out scholarships, you know, getting internships, um, you know, like making pitches for, you know, like why I should be the one speaking at a conference and all these things um, that is just really, um, I, I needed it to combat all of the negative self-talk that we as black people in general, and I'm speaking as, you know, for myself as a black woman, um, you know, here and are bombarded with around our lack of worthiness. Um, and so like just all this travel has really been a powerful experience for me around um, remembering you know, who God has created me to be and all the things that, you know, I'm capable of and, and are within reach. Um, and just like really exploding these notions of, you know, what's possible and what paths you, you know, have to take, you know, to get there. Um, and so, yeah, so all of that, just all of that. And then maybe just a bonus. Uh, I don't know if people want to hear this, but yeah, travels also show me how American, you know, I am like all the ways in which um, I've been indoctrinated into this culture, which has given me some really powerful opportunities to be reflective around. Yeah. Like what parts of that, you know, benefit me and, I can use and put to service for, you know, my community and, you know, towards causes that are important to me. And then what parts, you know, like really got to get purged, um, what parts, you know, were never meant, um, to serve me. And so it's been really, 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 uh, eye-opening, you know, for me to travel to so many different places and see life through other folks' eyes and recognize that, you know, there are definitely ways in which um, through mostly unintentional um, choices that I make that I can be, you know, an oppressor, you know, in the world through capitalism and what I buy and what I consume and, you know, how I show up um, that aren't okay, you know, with me and that I want to be intentional and have been, you know, intentional and continue to learn and recognize new blind spots around ways to um, be a better human being. Amen. I feel like you just preached the whole sermon right there. Uh, and uh, actually, we we're, we are going to talk a little bit more about, uh, as you alluded to, mentioning about being an American and, and kind of what our climate looks like here at home. Uh, and normally I would ask this next question a little bit later on in the interview, but honestly, I love how you shared like your self-awareness and confidence and just your growth process. So I do want to ask you a question that I've been asking all of the ladies that I interviewed this season um, is, you know, as black women, I feel like we are all superheroes, uh, which is why I wanted to start this podcast and really celebrate us. Even when the world doesn't always see us for who we are, we still always try to impact the world and make it a better place. So I want to ask you then, what do you believe your superpower is and how was it strengthened during your time living abroad? <laughs> um, 
That's a fun question. You know, I did a shamanic journey um, meditation and in the process of doing so, I was seeking, you know, some healing around some things. Um, I have never been diagnosed with depression uh, or anxiety, you know, and yet um, an anxiety disorder. And yet I'm clearly Joyce. I've been suffering from, you know, like anxiety, panic attacks since fifth grade, you know, since I started going to, you know, magnet schools that were required, you know, by the time I was in fifth grade, I don't think, you know, my parents, you know, could help me with my homework. (laughs) And so like just all the stress and like just emotional strife of performance, you know, and, 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 and not just performing, but literally being made to feel that you have to overperform and outperform um, that in many ways, you know, school uh, became this competition and especially getting to college, recognizing that actually, yeah, I am competing for spots and competing for, um, you know, access to these scholarships and these opportunities. And so, you know, so just all that as context to, I was doing this, um, shamanic journey meditation and really seeking some awareness around, um, you know, like where I need to put my attention in terms of, you know, my own healing. And one of the things that my ancestors like really pointed out very, um, simply and beautifully to me was, you know, you have to remember who you are. And the first step in that is remembering that you're not scared of the dark, And yeah, I think my superpower is I'm not scared of the dark. When I really sit back and reflect on the times that I feel the most scared, um, oftentimes, you you know how, (laughs) you know how, you know, if, uh, if one black person start running, we all start running like this mentality (laughs) of, well, look, it must be some perceived danger, right? Because why is this person, you know, running, but I have to realize that, there are times in my life where that can translate into all these other, you know, areas, um, can translate into, um, you know, potentially fears that, um, arise for me when I, you know, look at things, you know, in the media. Um, and so I'm very conscious about, you know, my, um, social media intake and, you know, I don't watch, you know, the news, um, in the same ways, you know, anymore, um, because clarity, you know, around that, um, and just, you know, like these other places where I recognize that actually there's a way in that, um, not that I'm not moved, not touched, but that the feelings that when I really sit with them aren't necessarily, um, being driven by fear, um, but have other opportunities for me to reevaluate, uh, what's happening and to be really clear about how I want to powerfully, you know, respond to them. Um, and then just recognizing too, that sometimes I can end up responding in fear, like out of this sense of belonging, you know, it's like part of how we belong to each other, um, is this, you know, notion of, you know, connecting through our experiences, um, you know, and our similarities and our, you know, um, um, shared pain, um, you know, and the joys, right? Um, But part of that, especially when we're talking about people in marginalized and oppressed communities, um, 
can oftentimes find itself, you know, riddled in, you know, fear of um, all these possible outcomes, you know, for us that are informed by, you know, those oppressive systems. And so, yeah, so I think that superpower has only been sharpened (laughs) by being abroad because there's so many ways in which I've had to walk right into the unknown um, and like be confident that I belong there and that whatever comes, um, you know, I can deal with it and that I have everything that I need, you know, inside of me to, you know, like process any challenge, you know, that arises and that, you know, I'm deserving of, all the joys and the beauty and the, and the wonder, um, you know, that comes from being able to, you know, experience the world in these, you know, childlike, you know, ways. And so, yeah, I, yeah, I think I'm a, uh, a light warrior in that way. I love that. Actually, you know, when, when you were talking about like remembering who you are, it made me think about that scene in Black Panther where he's almost losing that first challenge oh. and, and his mother, you know, Black mother, Queen mother, uh, said to him, you know, show them who you are or tell them who you are. And he started saying his name. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then that that power, you know, just arose inside of him. <laughs> Don't make me shout, LaJoy. Don't make me shout. You know... If I could just say one more thing there too, you know, I've been learning a lot about um, the role of initiation in African, you know, traditions. There's an African teacher named Maladoma Some, so I'm sure some of your, you know, listeners have heard of him. And so one of the things that, you know, he has spoken about and speaks about um, is the role of initiation in, you know, African context. And I think it's so powerful because he talks about how men and women alike, like there's a time that you have to go through a very specific process in order to transition from childhood to adulthood, from childhood to manhood, childhood to womanhood. And so he gives this like really sharp analysis around. So for African-Americans living in the United States, like many of us, like are calling um, this like lack of initiation, this lack of um, intentional transition into a different stage of life. We're calling it um, depression and anxiety and fear and lack of confidence when really we just haven't had um, this ancestral and like deeply, um, grounding tool of relating to new seasons, you know, of life. And so, you know, some of the initiations that he talks about, and he actually leads, you know, trips like this for people back to, you know, his home country of Burkina Faso to, to go through this are, you know, um, people like these, these youth um, will have to go out, you know, into the bush, um, you know, and be out there, you know, for, you know, weeks at a time, um, you know, like going towards all their fears, going towards um, being in the dark, going towards um, how am I going to eat, um, problem solving, like, you know, all of these things that would terrify us um, and are things that we resist, you know, at all costs. Cost. I mean, think about it. I feel like probably the, 
one of the biggest things that are on, you know, most people's minds in the United States is how am I going to pay my rent? You know, how am I going to keep up, you know, with my mortgage? It's like, you know, we're constantly in these um, survival modes and like evaluating everything through this lens of um, how am I going to survive? How am I going to support myself? And like feeling these um, really real um, pressures around, like managing, you know, all of that. And so he just speaks to that's part of what this um, like practice was always about and still is for people. It gives you an opportunity to recognize you are not scared of the dark because you were in the dark. Like you went through everything that you needed um, to go through to be very, very clear about this is who I am. This is what I'm capable of. Um, this is um, what I can count on, like for myself, getting really, really honest with yourself about the places, you know, where you, um, you know, feel insecurity, feel doubt and like having no other choice but to go through them. So by the time you come back, you know, into village, by the time you come back into community, not only, um, you know, is everybody else clear that, oh, yeah, you did that thing. Yeah, you a man <laughs> or, or, or you a woman. If you went through, you know, all that, you know, for all those um, weeks, but you're clear about it. And so I just think it's, you know, so important, especially as black people, for us to like be really uh just reflective, you know, about places where we're feeling insecure, places where, you know, we feel not enough, um, that in many ways, you know, living in the West, um, that some of these things are on purpose, right? Like some of these things are rooted in like deeply, you know, systematic, you know, racist systematic systems um, that are meant to keep us worker bees, you know, meant to keep us, um, you know, producing and consuming. And so how do you have, you know, time to like go towards all these things? And so, yeah, just for some reason I dropped in my spirit to want to say that. So I wanted to make sure I did. Well, no, it, I'm, I'm glad you did share that because that's actually in the, in the vein of, of where we're heading next, um, especially just in the, in the context of, uh, being raised right as an African American and what that experience has been like. So I'm going to take just a brief pause from um, our conversation about your experiences being a brown girl abroad to talk a little bit more about what's happening right here in the U.S. Because I know that you've had an extensive career in the nonprofit sector, you know, both abroad as well as in America, and that you've worked on various policies around systematic racism, such as the school to prison pipeline and mass incarceration. So can you, can you share a little bit more uh, with my listeners about some of that work that you've been doing over the last few years and also how can we help and be involved? Yes. Thank you for asking. So you know, again, I currently work as a coaching consultant for community organizing. Um, I started organizing without, you know, calling knowing that that was a profession um, when I was in Cameroon um, around some of the, you know, things I've mentioned before, like with, you know, having access to clean water in the community that I lived in. Um, now, um, 
when I moved back to the United States, um, I was living in New Orleans working for the MICA Project, um, a grassroots community organizing effort that focuses on grassroots organizing in within faith community. And so, you know, just a large part of, you know, what we were doing was really um, like working to combat systems that were oppressing people, as you already mentioned, in, you know, terms of education and like social outcomes of, you know, employment, um, you know, et cetera. And so just in the process of doing so, being able to really make, connect the dots that, all of these things, you know, are so interconnected, you know, we couldn't talk about mass incarceration and the need for reform there without talking about what was happening, you know, in classrooms, because there's, you know, so many studies, so much, um, you know, like data out there that, you know, kids who are being suspended, expelled, um, have a higher, especially in black and brown communities, um, have a higher propensity um, to be funneled into um, different, you know, criminal um, systems, um, hence, you know, mass incarceration. And so, you know, in recognizing that you can't talk about, you know, education without then talking about, um, you know, what's happening in community, um, you know, like what's going on in, you know, households with families, what opportunities exist for, you know, parents who are, you know, raising these kids, you know, who are going to schools, um, you know, what, you know, jobs, you know, do they have access to? Are they able to, you know, be there, um, you know, with their kids? Are they able to go advocate, you know, for, for their kids? Are they working, you know, two and three jobs? And so just all these systems, so, you know, interconnected. So I've worked on everything from, you know, um, ban the box, uh, removing, you know, the box that you have to check um, if you, you know, have ever been convicted of a felony or not, you know, from applications, um, you know, worked on um, getting in New Orleans, there were five schools in one particular neighborhood that were suspending um, anywhere between 75 and 90 percent of black and brown kids, um, you know, at those schools. And it's just over the course of a year. And it's just like, how in the world could you possibly have suspended 90% of them? Um, so working on, um, you know, changing um, their uh, disciplinary um, codes of conduct um, and implementing restorative justice, um, you know, um, systems um, like in, other schools that were doing some really um, innovative things in other parts of the country. And so now my work is really starting to shift in terms of being clear that so many of the social justice workers, organizers that I meet are incredible, dedicated, present people who are just so... um, you know, committed to the work, um, that the work in so many ways, um, is their lives. Like this is their calling and yet they can end up being, we can end up being, cause I'm one of them so under-resourced and how to really do this work, um, from a place of fullness and wholeness and not solely our sacrifice, um, and deficit. So many of us are under-resourced with self-care practices that actually nourish us, um, sustain us during this work. Um, I was reading a, you know, an article 
when I first started organizing that said that the average, you know, community organizer, um, if they can make it, first of all, the average community organizer doesn't make it past three years. And if they do make it past three years, then their propensity to do this work, you know, increases, you know, like tenfold um, that they end up, you know, being like lifetime, you know, professional organizers. So why do I say that? Why is it important? It's recognizing that what is happening to people who are so committed to their community, see a need for change, and yet can't seem to figure out how to make you know, this type of lifestyle, you know, work for them. So much of it becomes this work is hard work. You're working on um, police reform, you know, in your community. You're working on, um, you know, like um, poverty and, and homelessness in your community. Like it can be very spiritually, emotionally, mentally taxing work to hold space um, for so much pain, so much hurt, and trying to figure out how to navigate and lead people through a process um, of being able to to actually push, you know, for something better and even have hope, you know, that something can be better. And so my work is largely shifted to really figuring out how do we center social justice workers in social justice movements? What does it look like for us to create more access for people to do this work um, healed and not have to do this work from a place of constantly feeling beat up, um, you know, by all of these systems. So in terms of what I think people, you know, can do, um, there's, you know, organizing happening, you know, all over, you know, the country. Um, so, you know, if organizing is something that, you know, you feel called to, um, there's just so many opportunities, like, you know, Google what local organizing, you know, is happening in your community. I think on a more personal level, and the thing that I particularly feel called to in the moment is just really being reflective and, you know, asking yourself, like, no matter what you're being called to do, how is it being of service and how, you know, you're really prioritizing your own healing and your own care. I think especially in Black and Brown communities, you know, we're taught to, um, there's a way in which we've had to, you know, be there for each other and serve each other, which, you know, is a beautiful thing, provide opportunities and access, you know, for, um, you know, for warm meals and, um, you know, after school programs and all sorts of things that, you know, maybe we can't count on, you know, other places um, or other people or, you know, institutions to provide and, and to do, and especially to do in culturally, you know, sensitive and impactful ways. And so I think it's important that we interrupt, you know, this capitalistic notion of constantly doing without reflecting on um, how we, how we get better at, um, how we get better at positioning people to be able to do this work more sustainably and more wholly. And so I think asking yourself, are there places that it would, you know, benefit you to take a deeper look at in terms of where, you know, you're striving for more healing, you know, in your own life and then connecting, you know, to resources to do that. Because if you are showing up as, you know, um, 
a healed, grounded version of yourself, then I don't care what you're doing. You're going to do it better. You're going to do it, you know, more intentionally. You're going to be more productive um, and efficient at it, Um, you know, because we're going to spend, you know, less time um, working through some of the, um, you know, things that, you know, end up preventing us from, you know, being as impactful, you know, as we want to be. So that's what, you know, the types of retreats and things that I'm doing are about. It's really getting people to recognize that the most important work that we do is, is ourselves. The most important work that we do is interrupting these, you know, like, um, over productivity as a status symbol, um, you know, notions of what it means to be professional and what it means to be committed to, you know, the causes that we care about um, and like prioritizing, no, like my commitment is to myself and by the process of doing so that I'm going to do everything else better. I'm going to, and, and I'm going to love everyone else better. So I think, you know, just in terms of some really great places, you know, to, to get started with that is, you know, in our communities, oh my goodness, counseling in so many ways is, you know, so taboo. Um, I'm really big on, you know, maybe these are some things we can kind of drop in a link, you know, somewhere else, LaJoy, um, but there's some grassroots, um, co- um, grassroots counseling referred to as reevaluation counseling that, you know, is less about you going to see someone else who has the answers, but like really doing good peer-to-peer counseling and community with the recognition that everything you need, you already have, ain't nothing broken and wrong with us. It's about getting to a point of being able to be honest and release um, through, you know, discharge, through, you know, crying, through um, having safe spaces to accept, you know, that we're angry about things and have places to be able to work on, you know, our rage, Um, especially being a Black woman. Like this past year and a half has been such a powerful one of recognizing that, oh my goodness, I never feel safe being angry. Like as a black woman, when I get angry, you know, people get scared. When I get angry, people get confused. And it's just like, I need safe spaces to work on my anger. And so places, um, you know, like co-counseling are really beautiful contradictions to anything that you're going through. There's space for you to be able, um, you know, to work on it so that in the process of doing so, like actually being able to discharge and get those things like up and out your body and like move all that, you know, energy that may be stuck and like keeping you in a place. It's like once those things are like, you know, out and you're free from it, then you can think clearly. Like then you're able to be able to make powerful decisions about, you know, what you're doing because we don't need other people to tell us what we, you know, need to do. We're the expert of our lives. We know we just got to move past the blocks that are getting in the way of us being able to like really be in touch with that and to make, you know, those sorts of decisions. So things like co-counseling, you know, I've done EMDR, which is a type of counseling that specifically is focused on like moving through trauma um, using, you know, bilateral, you know, brain stimulation. Um, I'm saying EMDR, but there's also indigenous practices that inform it, you know, where it comes from um, through tapping um, and like some other modalities, you know, if you're, you know, listeners are familiar with that. Um, And then there are just people, you know, all over the country who are doing, you know, really 
you know, incredible things. Um, people can email me. There's um, a woman, Kata Witten Foster um, in Maine, who's a holistic trauma and wellness practitioner who leads people through all sorts of, you know, indigenous African, you know, ways of thinking about, you know, healing that counter uh, these very rigid, you know, and sometimes culturally insensitive, you know, approaches, um, you know, sister friend of mine, Jamie Morgan and, you know, Denver is a shaman and does, you know, energy work. Um, I mentioned these people, they're all over the country. I think COVID has really changed the game where there's so much stuff that you can access now, you know, via Zoom and, you know, virtually, you know, and online. And then obviously they're available in person, you know, too. So those are just some of the things that I think, you know, people can do and, you know, learn more about and be more engaged in. Wow. Well, I, I will thank you for sharing that. I think you took us kind of through the the entire cycle, <laughs> um, actually uh, almost like an encapsulation of what I feel like 2020 uh, taught us and, and was all about. So, you know, even from bringing things to light, like all of the injustice and systematic racism, all those things that we as a black community were aware of. And then from there, like, you know, you were talking about just that, that stillness and, and really like being with yourself and kind of figuring out what you, what you value. Um, or as the, the phrase that I like to use is my energy management. Um, so, Mm uh, so I can say there were last year, maybe certain people who I didn't talk to. And it's not that I, you know, don't like you. I just needed to manage my energy, (laughs) Um, you know, and, um, and be able to really, you know, be able to have my extensive devotional time, which I really have, have loved um, being able to experience. And even with, you know, um, church being virtual now um, and um, having living room church, <laughs> as, as, I, as I like to call it. Uh, but, you know, all these just different ways that we can um, really tap into all kinds of various resources. And so thank you again, like I said, for just kind of giving us that holistic perspective. And I think, too, like you, you mentioned, just starting locally um, and kind of figuring out if you do feel that's something that God's calling you to, how you can how you can connect with um, various organizations. So, um, yeah. So uh, with that, we will, uh, again, as the, we are still living in a pandemic or I should say living through a pandemic and, you know, um, thankful that, you know, we're still overall in good health um, and still here and able to have this conversation. And so I think uh, a lot of people are, are going to be, definitely thinking about traveling abroad again in the near future. And, and I would love for you to share um, your, I'll, I'll have you share your email address at the end um, just so people can reach out to you about that or some of the other resources that you mentioned. But I do also want to ask, do you have any specific advice that you would give to black women about traveling abroad? You know, um, one that, you know, we're, we're not a monolith. So just like really appreciating that, you know, we go abroad for so many different, you know, reasons. Um, and just like really wanting to honor that. Um, I think if I was going to blanket it, um, just really encouraging us to, you know, be curious and stay curious. 
um, and to have the courage to, you know, reevaluate, you know, our expectations of ourselves and, you know, those that we conform to, you know, to appease other people. Um, there's so many things I've done abroad that I don't think I ever would have, you know, or or never thought, you know, that I would have done, um, you know, I've been parasailing and, um, you know, my, (laughs) my husband grew up in Colorado. He's, um, you know, a black man and like really grew up, um, not, not so much growing up, but like later, you know, in his life, like really embraced, you know, camping and, you know, um, uh, white water rafting and things that I didn't grow up doing. And to be honest, like when I was growing up, you know, people said, oh, that's white people stuff. It was stuff that we didn't do. And he still can't really get me to get down with um, <laughs> white water rafting, you know, but now I love, you know, going tubing. I love, you know, going camping. One of my favorite places to camp is in Steamboat Springs, this um, little mountain town in Colorado um, that has hot springs, you know, there. Like, I love hot springs. My first introduction to hot springs was in Bath Fountain um, in Jamaica. It's like, whoa, we have these amazing things like right here in our backyard, too, you know, in the United United States. And so just really encouraging people, you know, to be curious um, and be really be willing to, you know, break past any expectations that you may have of yourself. You may just surprise yourself and like learn, you know, that you got some new hobbies. Um, you know, you know, you got some new things that that you like that maybe you didn't like before um, or never even knew to try. So just encouraging us to, you know, go for it, you know, and, and, and try it once um, as long as it's obviously honoring and, you know, and, and safe. Absolutely. And so also, you know, you, you mentioned your husband, so I know you're, you're a wife and a mom. So do you have any advice that you would give to families who might be thinking about traveling abroad? Oh, definitely. Um, so the number one indicator, if, if you're going to do something or not, is to plan for it. And so especially Black families, I encourage us to put it on your calendar. I read this um, other report that came out that was talking about the best part of taking a trip isn't even the actual trip itself. It's the planning of the trip. It's all the endorphins you release going, oh, in three months, I'm going to the Bahamas. Yay. And so I think that's just a really cool thing, um, you know, one, for families to get into, you know, like you can you know, have theme nights where you're, you know, I'm, you're going to the Bahamas, you know, maybe you're making, um, you know, like um, fresh fish and all these different things, you know, with the kiddos and, you know, like getting them excited about, you know, like what you're going to experience, what you're going to see. So, you know, put it on the calendar. Also, depending on where you're going, I think some people sometimes get overwhelmed by, you know, certain countries um, require you, you know, to have, you know, passports, visas, um, vaccinations, um, Um, Now in lieu of COVID, you know, like things are changing there. You may have to take, you know, COVID tests before you go or prove, you know, vaccination. So especially if you put it on the calendar far enough in advance, it gives you an opportunity to start thinking, you know, backwards around, okay, now how long is this going to take? It's probably going to take you, you know, anywhere between 30 and 60 days to get your passport. So just making sure, you know, that you're setting some realistic goals there. Um, I also think, you know, for families, Um, especially if you, 
haven't already been abroad, I think some of the great entry points, you know, to getting abroad and kind of getting your feet wet is to do things like cruises, you know, and like all inclusive um, packages, you know, to different places. Um, Also be willing to work you know, with a travel agent, many of us, you know, like stay away from travel agents because we're like, oh, it's going to be expensive, cost me extra money, da, 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 da. Uh, but there's some, you know, travel agencies that don't, the the cost isn't to you, the cost is to the company. And so it's built in where you're paying the same price as if you booked it, you know, online by yourself. And then some of these travel companies, you know, come with um, benefits, like, you know, if you book a cruise through Royal Caribbean, you know, online, um, you know, you may have to make a down payment and then pay the balance, you know, within a certain amount of, you know, um, time, whereas you may get more time through the travel agent, you know, if you book it, you know, through them. Um, and then sometimes they'll have other perks like, you know, upgrades, um, you know, because you book through them, like different incentives, you know, for it. And so I think especially if you can free up some of the things that would normally stress you out and prevent you from not going, like having to figure out all those details and like put that in a place that uh, potentially you don't even have to pay for, then like that'll make the process smoother, less stressful, um, you know, and easier to do. I also recommend, you know, things like, you know, Airbnb. So normally when I'm talking to, you know, families who want to travel abroad, you know, cost is an issue. Um, and so it's just being mindful that sometimes you can get some really ballerific accommodations um, by doing things like Airbnb. You know, I just got back from Costa Rica. Um, you know, there's some places for, you know, less than a hundred dollars a night that have, you know, pools like on the side of a cliff, of, you know, as part of the house. And it's just like, where are you going to stay at a place like that, you know, in the United States. And then it gives you, you know, like more flexibility in terms of, you know, being able to cook your own meals, um, especially, you know, if you have, family members with dietary restrictions and all those sorts of things. So those are just some of my like kind of practical, you know, logistic um, pieces of advice for families. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. I think uh, that that scientific fact you shared in the beginning, that totally makes sense. Cause I know I definitely get excited about planning uh, a trip um, and uh, also, I think you just uh, created a new word there, ballerific. I'm going to use it. I like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what are your top three favorite cities and or nations that you visited and why? Oh, my. Um, so this is in no specific order. And it's oh. really hard because, um, I mean, I, I honestly have even through some of the challenges that I've had in different places, um, just really feel grateful for everywhere that I've been. Um, I'd say I went to Carnival in Brazil, so Salvador de Bahia, uh, one of the historically black towns in Brazil. Um, I mean, from like just the richness of like experiencing, you know, Carnival um, there, to the food, um, to the dance, um, you know, to being able to, you know, take a capoeira class, um, you know, and learn about, you know, its uses in, you know, during slavery, um, where like folks were like literally learning how to defend and protect themselves in this like beautifully graceful, um, conspicuous, you know, way. Um, like I just absolutely 
love Brazil for all those reasons. Uh, I just recently got back from Puerto Viejo, um, Costa Rica. So I actually did an ayahuasca retreat that was amazing. Um, Puerto Viejo is a, you know, another historically, you know, black town. And in case you haven't noticed, um, I'm constantly looking for <laughs> where the black people at, you know. Look, I'm about to say, where look, I go? <laughs> you, as Issa Rae put it, you rooting for everybody black. <laughs> okay. Of course I am. Of course I am, you know. So I went to this, you know, ayahuasca retreat and I was like, okay, where are black people at? You know, <laughs> black, black people at the beach, you know, at Puerto Viejo. Um, and I mean, you know, they have a saying there, you know, La Pura Vida, like just this pure, beautiful life. And yeah, like people were just so laid back. Um, you know, I felt welcomed. Um, like it was very easy, you know, to, to get around. People were so, you know, kind and accommodating, you know, and it just, um, just everything, the, the food, um, it's beautiful, the beaches, like just, yeah, just everything. Um, you know, people don't necessarily know Africa for its beaches. Um, but some of my favorite beaches, you know, have been in Africa. So, um, you know, in, in Cameroon, there's a town called Limbe that's Anglophone. So English speaking, the large majority of the country, you know, speaks French. And so it was nice, you know, to be able to, you know, go to Limbe, <laughs> you know, and, uh, especially in the beginning when my French, you know, was so terrible and I was trying to learn French, um, you know, to be able to meet, you know, other folks there, you know, spoke English. Um, and again, food's incredible. There's, um, an animal sanctuary there um, um, for like monkeys <laughs> that was really, really wonderful to see. And these monkeys got some serious, you know, personality. It's just like, what are you doing? Like <laughs> there was some monkeys who were like throwing, um, what was it like apples or oranges, you know, at some of the, you know, people who would come in, like trying to get their attention and um, like, get them, like leave them food. I mean, just, um, you know, just some really, cool experiences and then my little nephews are uh, probably gonna scream at me for hearing this uh, me saying this although I you know say to them all the time you know I'm just not a huge zoo or like aquarium you know person so it's also like really special for me like being in other places where these sanctuaries are focused on um you know, like rescuing, you know, animals who, you know, potentially got injured because people were trying to poach them for whatever reason, like getting them back to a place of, you know, being able to reintegrate the wild, you know, and then releasing them, you know, back, um, you know, so there are also places to do safaris, you know, in Cameroon that are just amazing. Um, I got to go on a safari in um, the Serengeti, um, and, you know, Kenya, that was just absolutely incredible. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm pretty sure I named way more than three, but those were a few. Oh, and then, oh my goodness. And then Bath Fountain in Jamaica, um, the first hot spring that I ever been to. And the story is that, you know, hot springs are known for the sulfur that's in the water. And so during slavery, um, enslaved Africans would go there to heal their wounds. And so just a very powerful spiritual and like energetic, you know, experience to, to be at Bath Fountain. And then it's just gorgeous there. Way more than three LaJoy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because, uh, at, at one point in the season, like I, I would ask people like their top five, 
but I found that sometimes it was hard for people to name five. So then I took it down to three, but you gave me five, you know, so just going above and beyond, which I appreciate, you know, this is all about uh, a, a cultural exchange and uh, great conversation. So it's all good. <laughs> You're just giving us more places to add to our list. Um, <laughs> Thank you, LaJoy. And then I said Sarah Gary in, in Kenya, Sarah Gary um, in Tanzania, but it was one big backpack trip where I went from Kenya to Tanzania. So just clarifying that too. Thank you. Uh, so this, this next part, um, you, you will definitely get to continue, have some freedom. This is actually, uh, the, the last portion of the interview. It's a section that I've just, I've started calling a few of my favorite things. And so, these are some rapid fire questions uh, based on insights that you have from the places that you visited. And so basically I'll, I'll name a category and then you can uh, tell me like what city or nation comes to mind for that particular um, category. So uh, for example, the first one is where do you think that we can find the best food? Uh, West Africa, all over West Africa, from the jollof rice in Senegal to the koki beignets um, and Cameroon, so koki. Um, and in the South, we only eat black-eyed peas, you know, like um, as a stew, you know, you like boil them, you know, put your seasoning and stuff in them. In Cameroon, they would like grind black-eyed peas um, into like these little balls um and then deep fry them um and that was amazing or they you know grind them and then put them in banana leaves and steam them and so like the banana leaf would like that flavor you know would like get smoked into the you know little black bean patty that they call koki uh that's one of my favorite dishes you know period um you know and then like their uh bean omelets with spaghetti you know that that sounds so different but are delicious you know in Cameroon and just all uh, all the fresh fish you know in, in Ghana and Mali just all over West Africa that that that's where you go you know you got one last meal <laughs> you <just> went through <laughs> West Africa <laughs> Awesome. And then I know to you, um, you did mention that you do like plant-based cooking. So I'm sure some of that inspiration probably comes from your, your travels abroad as well. Uh, so I might have to ask you to, to send over some recipes. Uh, <laughs> um, and okay. So this next category, now you may have kind of mentioned it before, um, but where do you think we can find the best outdoor activities? Oh, that's, uh, uh, um, so this is through my lens of preference. I really love, um, water sports, um, and, you know, things like zip lining, um, you know, some stuff in nature. So I'd probably say Costa Rica has incredible, like just outdoor nature, um, you know, walks and hikes and waterfalls and zip lines. Zanzibar is one of the most beautiful islands that I've ever been to. And Zanzibar um, is a small island that is off the coast of Tanzania. So it's actually a part of Tanzania. 
uh, just beautiful, like white sand beaches, you know, there, uh, like little cobblestone um, streets, um, just so much um, to do. Um, and then, yeah, the safaris, you know, so going to, you know, um, the Serengeti and Tanzania was absolutely incredible. And then, you know, in Kenya, like there's so many amazing, you know, animal sanctuaries there too. So there's, you know, one for um, elephants that I went to, and then one for giraffes that I went to that were just really, really special places to be. And then I love the socially conscious commitment to reintegrate those animals back into you know, their natural habitats. Um, so they're not just there for our, you know, consumer capitalistic entertainment. So yeah, <laughs> those are a few. I'm sorry, LeJoy, I'm not answering one for anything. It's all good. You know what? Again, the, the more information you share, the better. So please right. have freedom. You are my guest. <laughs> Uh, so have freedom and I'm sure all of my radiant friends, that's what I call my listeners. They, they'll appreciate it as well. Uh, now one last, one last place too. Let me, so there's a town in Puerto Rico, um, called La Kia that it's one of, I think one of five places in the world where the algae in the water give off this fluorescent essence to where it looks like everything is glowing. And so they have, you know, trips that you can take, you know, around midnight, you like go out really late, you know, at night, you know, when the stars are, you know, like at their height in the sky. Um, and yeah, so you go out on this boat and then you can swim, you know, around and it just looks like everything is glowing. If you can get past, it's a little, little creepy. Uh, <laughs> But if you can get past, like, oh, my goodness, what is all this stuff around me? It really is magical and unlike anything I've ever done before. So I'd highly recommend that, too. No, that was, and that's a dope addition because I actually love bioluminescence. Uh, So, yeah, that sounds really, really dope. Um, Okay, this next one, you, again, may have kind of alluded to it before uh, in one of your previous answers, but... Where do you think we can find the best beach? Or for you, I'll say beaches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, don't sleep on African beaches. So all over West Africa, um, you know, Ghana, Cocoa Beach, um, Limbe again in Cameroon, um, in Senegal. I mean, take your pick. Um, Zanzibar, one of the most beautiful beaches. You know, sometimes we can sleep on Mexico um because it's in our backyard but people come from all around the world you know to go to mexico's (laughs) beaches so don't sleep on you know mexico um the bahamas is incredible um i mean there are some places where they're pink sand beaches um which is absolutely you know beautiful and amazing um so no shortage of, of beautiful beaches awesome And then where do you think that we can find some of the best accommodations? Wow. So my husband and I stayed at, um, there's an all-inclusive, all-adults resort called Secrets. And so we stayed at the Secrets in um, Mexico, in Riviera Maya, and then the one in Jamaica, and both of them were 
absolutely amazing um, and didn't disappoint. So we love that it was all inclusive and that you pay, you don't have to worry about anything else. You know, if you want to do some of the extracurricular, you know, activities around the country, you can. Um, but honestly, you know, we did that the first go round when we went to, to Mexico. But by the time we got to Jamaica, like the resort just has so many amenities that we didn't want to do anything else. We wanted to spend all our time, you know, at the resort. And so there's so many games that you can play and there's always, you know, like different entertainment, you know, that's happening at night. Um, you know, so there were like pretty much our own little VIP concerts, you know, happening that were, you know, incredible. Um, the food was amazing. There are people cracking open, you know, like coconuts, uh, fresh juices, um, pools and, you know, massages and all, you know, all the things. And so I, especially now that I'm older, like when I was younger, we had money, you know, for all that. Um, but now it's nice to be able to, you know, do some of those things. But honestly, you know, even on Groupon now, you know, had something like that existed, you know, when we were in college, um, you know, but Groupon, you know, my husband and I are taking our son and, you know, my in-laws and, you know, mom to, um, a res an all-inclusive resort in the Dominican Republic um, in Puerto Plata this um, December. And so we found that on Groupon, you know, for like crazy prices. It was something like $400 for seven days. And I'm just like, what can you beat that? You know, so I really love <laughs> all-inclusive. All if I can find it, that's where my head's at. <laughs> beautiful it sounds like you are you are the bargain hunter and i'm here for all of it okay <laughs> definitely definitely look you gotta be many of us got football teams for families <laughs> well okay. and you know my my family does a lot of the destination reunions so mm -hmm. yes <laughs> so i have a couple more for you uh and so where do you think we can find some of the best cityscape. Cityscape. <sighs> wow. Um, you know, my husband, everywhere we go, he loves to take pictures of Capitol, you know, buildings. Um, his dad's an architect. And so I think he, you know, has a special appreciation for, um, skylines and things that um, I'm sure I I notice and don't always appreciate, you know, in detail in the way that he does. And so we, you know, went to Japan and some of the like just, yeah, like visually stimulating, like layout of, you know, cities. I'm just like, man, who is the city planner here? Picasso? Like some of the, you know, I mean, just... You know, and when you think about, you know, um, you know, Wakanda and like the, you know, virtuoso and, you know, just like all these like really innovative, like different looking buildings, um, like just all over Japan, especially Tokyo was really fun, you know, for that. Um, I also really appreciated um, when I was in China, um, I went to a small town, uh, I guess not, no, it was not a small town, <laughs> I don't think. China has small towns, um, maybe, <laughs> maybe lesser known town, um, Hangzhou <laughs> and then, um, Shanghai, like just to see all of the, 
you know, like older um, architecture, you know, in the cities, in some of the cities was like really cool, you know, to see um, and things that, you know, you really don't get in any other, you know, part of the world. Um, I also was really, really um, just in awe of the old Medinas. So Medina meaning town. Um, So the old Medinas and uh, Morocco, so especially in Fez, um, <laughs> the old Medina sits right next to the new Medina, the new city. And so you see this like huge, like um, tall walled, you know, like everything's walled in, like they close the gate, you know, at night. It's like literally almost looks like a fort, like literally this like structure that is like straight out of, you know, Yeshua's day and age and then right next to it in the new city is um McDonald's you know (laughs) so just like this incredible you know contrast um was just really really cool you know to see perfect got adding all these places to the list for sure and you mentioned Shanghai I actually have um upcoming guests who had a work assignments in Shanghai so a couple of more brown girls abroad who I'm sure will give us a little more detail about that. Um, But yes, in general, I've heard Asia has some really beautiful architecture. So yeah. All right. Now here is the last one. Where do you think we can find the most beautiful landscape? First thing that came to mind, um, was the Sahara Desert in Morocco. I've never seen anything like it. I think because it's so different from anything that I've ever experienced before. Um, It's just permanently like, you know, etched into, you know, my mind. Um, Almost, it's like you are standing, you know, in in the desert and it's like you have a glimpse of like what eternity looks like. It's like this never ending, um, you know, thing that just keeps going and is all around you and, you know, like is made up of these teeny tiny particles of sand. Like that's all it is, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and yet those things can, you know, blow in and be anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, just absolutely beautiful um yeah definitely Sahara Desert perfect yeah and I know you also mentioned Morocco for having beautiful uh cityscape and Mm -hmm. I would say that's definitely in on my list of I would say probably somewhere in the top five to ten places that I would like to go over the next few years because I've seen uh well over at at Disney in one of the theme parks, um, they have an area called the World Show Place um, at Epcot, and they consulted with, um, like, each nation. And Morocco, in my opinion, has, like, the most beautiful architecture of all of the, of the nation's pavilions. Um, and it's, it's very, like, intricate, and, um, and it almost, like, there's just, like, layers and layers and layers to it, and they have this beautiful fountain, and, um, and I just, like, love all the shops and stuff there. The restaurants, of course, are um, amazing as well. So, yes, Morocco is on the list. 
Um, Definitely. <laughs> uh, now, Zakaria, so I'm I'm done with with all of my uh, official questions and want to definitely give you the opportunity to share your your contact information or if there's a website or how people can um, can get involved with whether it's the the radical self care retreats or or some of the other um, work that you're doing. Definitely. So I am a hustling mom um, out here and a lot of the retreats that I'm doing right now um, are things that I, you know, curate. Um, And so they're not, you know, happening um, at specific times of the year, um, but have largely been in response to, you know, need um, and then you know, like just different promptings and, and, you know, and, and leading from the creator. So the next um, retreat that I'm looking at doing is um, a black and brown women's healing retreat um, in 2022, um, probably sometime in the summer. And so folks can contact me at my email, which is sakuria.dickerson at gmail.com. Um, should I spell it or will you just put it? Yeah, in my but you go ahead and spell it. For, All for right. <laughs> so, so that's S E Q U O R I A dot Dickerson, D I C K E R S O N at gmail.com. Excellent. Thank you. Well, so Carrie, I've definitely enjoyed having you on, on Brown Girl Radiance and um, just providing such amazing insights about all of your travels and, um, and really a lot of great information about uh, the continent of Africa as well, which I'm very passionate about and just the work that you're doing here at home, um, helping take care of our, our activists, um, our organizers um, and, and being an expert in that nonprofit realm and, and really just trying to encourage and build people up. Um, So Thank you so much for for being a part of the show uh, today and uh, look forward to chatting with you again very soon. Of course, it's any time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Excellent. Glad to hear that. Well, I will see you soon. Bye, fam. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Brown Girl Radiance Podcast, please share it with a friend so that we can continue to celebrate and shine together. Brown Girl Radiance Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, CastBox, iHeartRadio, and Pandora. If you want to stay connected to Brown Girl Radiance Podcast, you can follow me on Instagram at Brown Girl Radiance Podcast. And feel free to email me at brown girl radiance podcast at gmail.com.